Um, this morning is going to be a little bit unique. Um, as Eric mentioned, Pastor Billy is sick, and he gave me permission to tell you uh, that yesterday at around 3 o'clock he did test positive for COVID, um, so that's why he is staying away and just wanting to be extra careful. Um, so we, we want to be praying for him. Um, it also means that uh, yesterday at 3 o'clock I had to shift into sermon prep mode, and uh, it means I did not have tons of preparation time. And uh, it would be one thing if, if, he, if I was given just kind of the next assignment in the passage, but instead, um, we recognize that today, or actually yesterday, was the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and um, that today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so this is a time that uh, every year, for the last, I don't know how long, every year, we, we take a moment on Sanctity of Life Sunday and talk about the sacredness of human life, whether um, through an extended devotional thought over announcements or through a sermon. And so it just so happens that Sanctity of Life Sunday is today. And so Pastor Billy asked if I would, um, if I would speak on that topic. And uh, yeah, so I'll share a few thoughts on that and then um, a personal testimony as well. So today is going to feel a little bit different. If you're visiting, we're going through the book of Revelation and um, so we're hitting the pause button on that um, to address sanctity of life issues today. And um, just cut me some slack because I didn't have a lot of preparation time. Um, so I will, I will do my best and entrust it to the Lord. And um, yes, that's right. I appreciate it. That's right. So that's, that's kind of the roadmap for today. Um, and I think it's always, actually, before I jump in, let me, let's just pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, we know that you are sovereign over all things, and that um, Pastor Billy going down for the count yesterday afternoon was not an accident or a surprise to you, and uh, all of the folks that are here today are not, an, not here by accident either, that you have good plans in store for us this morning. And you have good things that you want to accomplish through the unfolding of your word. And so we just invite you to do that. I ask for your spirit to empower me now to speak with clarity on these things, Lord. With comfort to those who are hurting. With exhortation to those who may be apathetic or indifferent to the issues. Um, we ask that you would have your way among us this morning. And that our hearts would be uh, turned to prayer as we contemplate these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I think it's always interesting that every year the Sanctity of Life, uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday falls usually in the same week as Martin Luther King Jr. Day, as it did this, this week. And for Christians, we know that both the issues of racism and the issue of abortion are Sanctity of Life issues. Both of them are. Because we believe that all human life is sacred. From the moment of conception until death, all human life is sacred. And this truth has more bearing on our lives than we often realize. And I think uh, what the danger is for, for Christians and those of us who have been in church and around church is that we can hold the right conclusions, the right doctrines, the right conclusions, like abortion is wrong, that is a right conclusion, but not really understand the foundation behind it and the why behind it. And so that's, that's what I hope to draw our attention to, is not so much to try and convince you that something like abortion is wrong, but rather to draw our attention to what foundations should undergird the convictions that we arrive at. We don't want to merely arrive at convictions and hold them 
ignorant of the foundations that those convictions are based upon. And so that's what I, I want to hope to do this morning is give us a brief overview that I hope will firmly root us in what the Bible teaches about human life. Now, just we're at a unique cultural and political and legal moment right now. Um, and so if you're not familiar with all that's, that's going on, I just want to give you a brief overview. Um, and so recently, the state of Mississippi adopted legislation that restricted abortion after 15 weeks. Good thing, right? Well, an abortion clinic in Jackson, Mississippi, sued the state of Mississippi over this ban, claiming that it goes against Roe v. Wade, 1973, and the Casey decision of 1992, both of which legalized basically abortion on demand for any reason at almost any time. Um, of course, Mississippi law does go against those two Supreme Court decisions, but the state's argument is that those two decisions were unconstitutional to begin with and should be overturned. Well, this issue is right now before the Supreme Court. Oral arguments were heard in December, and a decision is ex expected sometime in June. Now, we can't know what, uh, what the court will decide, but we do know that recently, um, in September, the great state of Texas passed a similar law, which bans abortion after six weeks. I mean, that's before many women know that they're even pregnant, or as Planned Parenthood's website would word it, before many people know that they're pregnant in an effort to push gender, erase gender distinction, gender as a category at all. And so the state of Texas uh, was sued by Texas abortion clinics, and that went to the appeals court. And this week, that the state's decision to ban abortion after six weeks was upheld by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, which is great. Yeah. So... Right now, what that means is that in Texas, you cannot get an abortion after six weeks, which is, which is wonderful. Um, now, between that decision and the Dobbs case that's before the Supreme Court right now, there is actually, for the first time in my lifetime, a growing momentum for the potential overthrow of Roe v. Wade. And of course, if that happens, let's understand the battle isn't entirely over because the culture of abortion, the culture of death is still alive and strong. So what we can hope for and pray for and fight for is a realization of the horrors of abortion such that we would look back on these 50 years of aborting over what is now 60 million babies and see it like in the same way that we look at something like slavery in the South or the Holocaust. Um, that we would look on it with the same sort of shame and embarrassment, like, how did we let this happen? Now, I want to just press that issue for a moment before we turn to the book of Genesis. It's been said that those who forget history are bound to repeat it. When we look back at history, at something like the Holocaust, just about everyone easily recognizes that it was a moral evil, an atrocity, an absolute horror of monstrous proportions. Why? Because in the Holocaust, men, women, and children were murdered simply because Hitler and everyone that he influenced determined that those people were not useful to society. They were Lebens und Wertes Lebens, life unworthy of life. They were an inconvenience, a burden to others. And ultimately, they were holding back from society from realizing its fullest potential. And anyone who does that under that thinking should be eliminated. 
So those in positions of power use the weak for their own advantages, right? Be that scientific research or military weapon testing or any of the other horrors that were committed in concentration camps. And then to proceed to eliminate them by force. Now as Hitler was steeped in the same Darwinian evolution that is mainstream today, this made perfect sense to him. It was survival of the fittest. The way to advance the human race was simply to eliminate the weak and inconvenient. And when we think of it in this way and realize, we will quickly realize that the parallels to abortion are truly frightening. The pro-choice cause is built on these same principles. Society worships the false gods of autonomy and freedom and even expresses that worship through the sacrifice of its own children. There have been more and more news stories and articles of the so-called good of abortion and the so-called evil and tragedy of things like adoption as a way to push this agenda. People are so in love with themselves that they'll do anything to be free from the burden of someone else, especially someone weaker and smaller and ultimately not worthy of life. I mean, that should be mind-boggling to clear-headed Christians how a society can condemn the Holocaust, which did exactly those things, and yet not only approve, but legislate the evil of abortion. Now I realize I'm, I'm preaching to the choir on this. Many of you know that abortion is evil. But we should always remember that for some, Sanctity of Life Sunday is a time that to them feels like just heaping upon shame and guilt on an already broken heart. For those who've had abortions, let's always remember that those people are people in need of the deep, powerful forgiveness that can only come from Jesus. The deep and powerful healing that we sing about and celebrate can be felt, and it can only come from Jesus. When we think of a line in a song like, our shame goes deeper than the sea, but his grace goes deeper still. We, we want the grace and healing and forgiveness of Jesus to arrive into the lives of those who have participated in or aided in or, or have had an abortion. It is heartbreaking, but there is forgiveness and healing in Jesus. But, and for those who have not had that, but who are opposed to abortion, well, we need the grace and courage to stand against it in whatever capacity God's granted us to do so. And so, at the end of the day, it's all level ground. We all need Jesus. We all just need the grace of Jesus, don't we? But as Christians, may we... May we not only be known for what we're against, may, may we be just as loud and clear as what we're for. I mean, the reasons we oppose abortion and make it a primary issue is because we believe in the sanctity of human life. Every life is sacred. Now, where does this come from? Why, why do we believe this? We, we are made in the image of God. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we'll do a very quick flyover so we can see and know that this idea that we're made in the image of God emerges from the Bible. That we're not just making this up for some other reason, but we are deriving this directly from Scripture, and I want you to see that. So Genesis 1, let's look at verse 26 and 27. 
says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Oh, such important words for our day on so many levels. I'm just going to hit a few. Number one, we are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, in what way are we made in the image of God? It means that we bear this potential to reflect His glory. That is, to receive the glory radiating out from Him and to bounce it off to others around us. That potential to display God's glory is bound up in being created in his image and it's part of why we value every single life. Every single human life has been stamped with God's image. Think about that. From the worst sinner to the holiest saint, we're all created in God's image and we're meant to reflect him and represent him in a special way. It's true that all of creation is declaring the glory of God. That is true. The Bible tells us the skies above proclaim his handiwork and so on. But uniquely, humans are the pinnacle of God's creation because they are the only ones said to be made in his image and likeness. Uh, Dutch theologian uh, Herman Boving says, Every creature in its own way and degree is the embodiment of a divine thought. Just let that sink in. Every every creature in its own way and degree is the embodiment of a divine thought. We were recently at the Audubon Zoo in in New Orleans over Christmas break, and I'm looking at this Komodo dragon and and just watching him move. And it's just mesmerizing. You just sit there and watch this thing. Every creature is an embodiment of a divine thought. It's God's creativity put on display for you to sit back and marvel, not just at the coolness of the creature, but the God who made the creature and to become enraptured in his beauty and creativity as expressed in his creation. Bavink goes on, but among creatures, only man is the image of God. God's highest and richest self-revelation and consequently the head and crown of the whole creation. It's very well said. So how does that get expressed? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So the second point we see from this is that we are to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. As being distinct from creation, humans are given the the authority and responsibility to exercise dominion over the creation. Now, this goes against an evolutionary view that views humans as merely advanced animal life forms. We as Christians need to be careful not to adapt that kind of thinking. We are not merely advanced animal life forms. See, in evolution, there's no categorical difference between man and animal. Only functional differences and cognitive differences. We are a little bit more 
advanced. We're a little bit, we have evolved a little bit further than uh, even an intelligent mammal like a dolphin. But in the Bible, we see that in the same way that God is categorically distinct from all creation and he exercises ultimate dominion over it all, he has created mankind to be distinct from the rest of creation and exercise dominion over it as an extension of his creator God. So think about this. When you, when you catch a fish or you shoot a deer or you chop down a tree to build a fire or you purchase lumber to build a house or remodel your kitchen or whether you clear a field to grow cotton or help bring oil out of the ground, you are exercising dominion over the creation. You're not hurting nature when you do this. You're doing what God designed you to do, provided that you're doing it for the good of others and not crushing others to get it done. Certainly sin comes in and twists and distorts this. See, our society wants us to believe that human, humans are the problem, that we're destroying the planet and all these things. So we can definitely be irresponsible. And we're called to be good stewards of all the resources that God has given us. But human ingenuity and creativity and technological advances, with all their potential drawbacks, right, with all their potential drawbacks, can also be used to promote the good of humanity. And so we care about that because only humans are created in God's image and bear a sacredness that the rest of creation does not. Now, when we come to Genesis, we see this mandate given. Later in chapter 3, sin enters the world. And ever since the entrance of sin, exercising dominion has certainly been corrupted for selfish gain. But in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the curse of sin is being reversed in our lives and we can exercise dominion and do all that we can in our jobs and vocations to promote human flourishing to the glory of God. Why? Because of what we just read in Genesis 1, 26 to 30. We're fulfilling what God's called us to do. Functioning the way he intended us to function. Fast forward to Genesis 6. At this point, man's wickedness has become so great, God destroyed the earth with a flood. And as Noah and his family emerged from the ark, it would appear mankind was given a fresh start, a new chance to get it right. I think... Well, never mind, I'm not going to get off on that. A new chance to get it right. In Genesis 9, go to Genesis 9 now, please. In Genesis 9, there's another sort of creation mandate 2.0, where many of the same things are said that we read in Genesis chapter 1, signaling that with the, the post-flood world, mankind was starting over again, kind of. But by the end of chapter 9... Noah's drunk on the floor and bad things are happening and it's very clear, no, this was not the new fresh start that people were hoping for. And like the Old Testament does throughout the, old, the entire story of the Old Testament, it creates this longing in our hearts for a full and final redeemer who will set things right to arrive on the scene and eradicate evil. And we know where that's going, don't we? Okay, so before we get there, Genesis 9, let's look at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons. This is coming right out of the ark. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, and upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. 
And as I've given you green plants, I, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with, the, with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, and teem on the earth, and multiply in it. Now, the third thing that we see from this part of the story is that the sanctity of life is not just an, an ontological reality bound up in, in personhood and identity and being. Um, it's not just exercising dominion over creation that emerges from the idea of being created in the image of God, but this new aspect is added here in chapter 9, that the sanctity of life changes how we treat others. Point number three, the sanctity of life. By the way, no notes. Uh, sorry, didn't have a chance to do notes. So just, I'm just giving it to you as we go. Um, the sanctity of life changes how we treat others. When verse six here tells us not to murder, where does it root the reason for commanding us not to murder? Why, why should we not murder? It's rooted in the fact that man is made in the image of God. The reason we don't wrongfully take another man's life is because God made man in his own image. This is where we got to come back to this important foundational truth. It's not just because it's wrong. It's because man is made in God's image. That's why murder is wrong. For the Christian, we've got to be clear about that. And being made in the image of God, that man's life bears a certain sanctity to it that is worth protecting. Now, at this point, I want to just give a, a caveat in case you're wondering about some of these other things. The Bible carefully addresses things like capital punishment and what Christians have historically called just war theory. Um, killing someone out of self-defense is not the same as murder. So the old King James translation, thou shalt not kill, I would say is inaccurate. It's thou shalt not murder is what was in view. Because in the same book of Exodus, we see God commanding the killing of certain animals for the purpose of sacrifice. We see it in Genesis to kill an animal. Uh, I've given you these things to eat. Don't eat it while it's still alive. Implication, you got to kill it first before you eat it. So it's clear that the Bible is not categorically forbidding killing, but that it's forbidding murder. Now, so the Bible's clear about that. Um, it's not the, killing is not the same as murder, nor is bringing to justice criminals who have warranted the death penalty. We've preached on Romans 13 and the government's responsibility to restrain evil, sometimes by use of deadly force if necessary. I'm not talking about those exceptions here. Um, that would be another sermon. The context here is, is murder, which is different from killing. That's important. Um, in our family, we, we pray for uh, our meal before we, before we eat. And uh, there have been times where our, our boys have, have prayed. And, and as we thank God for mommy for preparing this meal for us, they'll say, and we thank God for the people who hunted this. And so after we explain how we get chicken nuggets, um, we have to explain why murdering another human being and killing a chicken so we can eat it are two very different things. And we need to understand those two different things. And, and they're different because one is created in the image of God and the other is not. The other is given to us by God for the purpose of food, as we just read. So being created in the image of God is the key factor. It's the sanctity of human life 
Um, which is why I, I try to be intentional to even insert the word human. It's not that all life in the entire planet is sacred. No, human life is sacred. The Bible makes that very clear. So the reason murder is wrong is because God made man in his own image. But let's tighten the net a little bit more. Turn now, if you would, to James chapter 3. Now we're in the New Testament, written way after the things we just read. James chapter 3, in verse 9, James is talking about the power of the tongue and the importance of speech. James 3, 9 He says, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So follow that argument there. I mean, he could have just said, don't say mean things to each other. Don't curse each other. But don't miss the whys. The Bible's always given us whys. Why do we not use our speech to curse and condemn others? What's undergirding that? The why there is in verse 9. The reason we should not curse people is that they are made in the image of God. So more, more broadly, why do we treat people with dignity and respect, not cursing them with our words, actions, or attitudes? Because they're made in the image of God. They bear the imprint of their creator. So when we remember that every single person is made in the image of God, according to James, that should change how we even treat people. Now, this was just a very brief flyover of just a couple places in the Bible that addresses the sanctity of human life. And we can see that it's not just true in essence, but from Genesis and into the New Testament, being made in the likeness and image of God is foundational to how we live and how we treat others. And it's why we work and how we, it affects how we think about everything in life from flying on an airplane to using an iPhone to going hunting to selling oil field parts to picking up a prescription at a pharmacy. What we view about the sanctity of human life speaks into every single one of those. And I want to kind of challenge us to think through some of that. Think through why, why do I do these things? Where, where, how does the Bible inform my thinking on all of these things. Because the sanctity of life is speaking to every one of those that I just listed. This is why I think the sanctity of life is an issue. It's like a lighthouse. That in the midst of the fog. And in the midst of maybe ethical questions that you've wondered about. The sanctity of life can be like that lighthouse. That as you lose your direction. It, it, it brings you back to, what, to help you know where to go. And it can serve us that way. So in particular, I want to focus on just a few issues um, for Sanctity of Life Sunday and draw out how being made in the image of God and the sanctity of human life bears on these issues. Obviously, the first one being abortion. And I've mentioned that already, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But it seems that the, the issue, the crux of the matter in our day is over a woman's right to control her body um, versus a baby's right to life. Um, so that is often how the, the issue is framed. And one pro-choice proponent acknowledges this reality with great clarity and says the following. So this is, quote, a fetus can be a human life 
without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside her, always. To which we would say, wrong, always, always wrong. Why does the right to life trump the right of personal choices? Does, does it? Does the right to life, should the right to life trump personal choice? Well, in a just society, it always does. When in society or law does a person's freedom to choose ever give them the right to wrongfully take a life? In other words, to put it in terms of the Holocaust, was Hitler merely exercising his right to choose? And we should stand back and respect that, not, not try to intervene with his private choices, even though it has bearing on other people. If it's wrong to take a life outside the womb, why would it not be wrong to take a life inside the womb? So, obviously, that has bearing on that issue. But as many have said, where the sanctity of life is compromised at one end of the spectrum, it will soon be compromised on the other end of the spectrum on the same grounds. So, this has bearing on end-of-life choices, not just beginning-of-life choices. Many have said uh, that when it comes to assisted suicide and things like that, its advocates talk about uh, the, the, the way that, it, that view is defended is in reference to f- the financial burden of the person, their uselessness to society, non-productive lives, dependency on other people, economic burdens, all of those things. And honestly, it should not surprise us that those are all the same issues that come up in the abortion discussions, right? So how does being created in the image of God speak to this? Well, we acknowledge that the Lord gives and takes away life. That life is sacred and should be preserved at all costs. So we avail ourselves of the use of medicine and technology, not to fight our mortality, but to preserve life because we believe human life is sacred. And this guideline of the sanctity of human life can help us with other end-of-life choices. If someone is terminally ill with an irreversible condition, is it immoral to withhold all treatment and allow the person to die naturally. Not at all. Doing so is a simple acknowledgement that the Lord gives the breath of life and determines the time and means of our dying. But nor would it be wrong to use whatever treatment is available to reverse or slow the condition as a means of preserving life. You see how the, the sanctity of life guides us in making difficult ethical decisions and can be that lighthouse on end of life choices. So we look abortion, end-of-life choices. Next, gender identity. We read in Genesis that he created them male and female. Our gender is assigned to us by God. It's a good thing. The transgender community argues that gender is something that nature handed to us, but not something we need to accept if we don't want to accept it. I mean, after all, it would be argued, if you were handed uh, club feet or cleft palate, you can have surgery to fix and reverse the fate nature gave you. And that's how it is with gender. That you can fix that. You can change that. You can reverse that. You don't have to be okay with whatever nature handed you. In some cases, these things are just accidents of nature, and you would be a responsible person to go ahead and fix that. And so that thinking gets applied to issues of gender. Well, how does the Bible speak to that? Well, disease and deformity, we must recognize, are the result of the fall. We live in a fallen world, and that world is broken down. 
which means our bodies don't always work right. Babies are born with terminal illnesses. My brother walked through that. It was heart-wrenching. Some viruses spread rapidly. But gender is never said to be a result of the fall. Never. God created gender pre-fall. That means it's part of God's good creation. And what gender God assigns someone is never an accident. It's an aspect of being created in God's image. And listen to this. The image of God is actually expressed in maleness and femaleness. The image of God is expressed in maleness and femaleness. And there's no in between. And it's not our right to change God's good design for us. Now, that's not to say that the struggle isn't real. I want to acknowledge that. It's often very real. Many people are struggling with understanding the gender that God has assigned to them. And, and making sense of how their, their, the gender, their biological sex relates to the feelings that they have inside. These, are, these can be very real struggles that people have. We need to understand and be clear that their gender is not why they struggle. They struggle about their gender because they live in a fallen world and sin messes with our minds and hearts from day one. But their gender is given to them by God and it is good in every case. It is sin which has distorted the way people understand and come to terms with how their creator made them. But in Jesus, all things are being made new. He comes, and in the unfolding of his word, it brings light to the fog and the darkness. Psalm 119, 130 tells us. It brings clarity to the confusion. And this is the hope and healing that we will continue to offer as a church, no matter the cost, because the sanctity of human life is at stake, and that is foundational and fundamental to what the Bible teaches about humanity. And we will stand on this truth no matter what happens in the culture around us. It's not just gender identity. Sanctity of human life comes to bear on issues of lust and other sexual sin. I don't mean other as though gender identity automatically is sexual sin. Just lust in any forms of sexual sin. Sexual sin dishonors people who are made in God's image. Now the way I've defined lust is... uh, the pursuit of sexual pleasure outside of God's design for sexual pleasure. And I think that's a super important definition because it it tells you that there is, God does have a good design for sexual pleasure. It's not all bad and evil. God has a good design for that. And the, the design for that is within the context of marriage. And so lust is pursuing sexual pleasure outside of God's design for sexual pleasure. And when we do that, we're using someone else for our own advantage. We are desecrating the image of God in that person. See, because being created in his image, there's a sacredness to their life that we should honor and respect. Lust, instead, takes advantage of others for our own gain, and we dishonor the image of God in us and in them. And this is sin, whether it happens physically or whether it happens privately in the space of our own minds between our own two ears and in our hearts. The sanctity of human life and being created in God's image can be a weapon in the battle against lust. You'll need many more weapons than that, but this is one weapon you should definitely keep close by. Moving on, other things like bullying. I don't know why it's a hard word to say, bullying. bullying. All people are created in the image of God. 
which is why we stand against the injustice of bullying. We reject the idea that the strong can prey on the weak and stomp on them to get to the top. See, bullying is not just a junior high problem. That happens in the work world too. Crush someone to get to the top. In a biblical worldview, we acknowledge that all men and women are created in the image of God, which means those who can should help and protect the weak and less fortunate. We work hard for the good of others as Christians, and we don't tolerate bullying because everyone is created in the image of God. Same applies to racism. Every single race, no matter someone's skin color, is worthy of dignity and respect because they are equally created in God's image. See, sanctity of life affects how we view others who don't look like us on every level. Poverty. We're sensitive to people in poverty and seek to alleviate suffering, especially eternal suffering, because the poor are created in God's image too. Not just problem people in society that are just a burden that need to get out of the way. No, they're created in God's image. Abuse. We see abuse in all of its forms as deplorable. There's never a good reason for any form of abuse because again, the strong do not prey on and injure the weak. The Bible's call is for the strong to protect the weak. And anybody that suffered abuse, especially as a child, would, would be on the receiving end of a complete distortion of what God has designed families and adults and those stronger to actually be doing, which is to provide protection and care and not take advantage of. I know many of you are working through the ministry safe um, training and, and taking the test and going through that and, that, that, and that's a difficult process for some. It's uh, watching the videos and the interviews and everything can be very disturbing can kind of like make you feel yucky when you're done doing it. Just want to say thank you for taking the time to do that. Because we believe in the sanctity of every life. And we believe that adults should be those who advocate for the protection and care of children. Which is why we do sexual abuse awareness training for anyone serving in children's ministry. Why do we do it? Sanctity of human life. It comes back to that. So thank you for taking the, the time to do that and walking the hard road of going through that training. Um, it's one of the ways that we are seeking to protect the weak and vulnerable among us so that children's ministry is a place of green pastures and not a place where uh, sin comes to wreck and ruin people's lives as it sadly has happened in churches. Now I want to transition now to just share a brief testimony about uh, my own life, our own family. Um, for those of you who have been around a while, you've heard, you know our story, and, uh, but I know there's so many new faces. So Pastor Billy actually asked if I would uh, share our story. Um, and before I do, I'm thankful for the adoptive families in our church, um, and we have many of them, those serving children in the foster care world. There's just so many, these are just some of the ways that we can uh, honor the sanctity of human life. There's many more ways, um, but Pastor Billy asked if I would share our personal story um, and I did get permission from our boys and, and my wife to, to share this. Uh, of course, we're super open about We love their story. We love talking about it with, with our kids, and we do it all the time. So uh, they, they didn't have any issue with this. Our story begins in 2006 when we started trying to have kids. We were very young, pretty healthy, and never expected what lied ahead. We were soon diagnosed with infertility. And for the next seven years, we did what we could to become pregnant, but we never saw two pink lines. 
Now, when I say we did what we could to become pregnant, I meant that this conviction of the sanctity of human life guided our decision-making in, uh, in the world of medical intervention and reproductive technologies. This theological foundation served as our lighthouse as we navigated our way through the challenges. And we often found ourselves asking this question, which treatment option most upholds, protects, and preserves human life? I just want to ask you, please pray for anyone that you know that's battling infertility because these are never easy questions. And, they're, and it's wrought with tons of emotion and pain as you're trying to walk through it. Along the way, doctors would tell us that Daniette would have no problem carrying a baby, but that our problem was that we couldn't conceive. And we eventually heard of embryo adoption. And if you haven't heard of that, I'll explain that. When couples undergo in vitro fertilization, which we have never done, a baby is created outside the mother's womb and then placed in the mother's womb. The babies that are conceived at this stage are called embryos. And often with this procedure, several, up to a dozen at, at times, uh, embryos are created because the chances of survival are only about 30%. And so it, additionally, couples can freeze and store the remaining embryos in a lab for use at a later date. Now this can, can create a real ethical dilemma. Um, and, and if life begins at conception, then what happens to these embryos if the couples finish having children? Or they go through a divorce? Or for whatever cause, they never have a reason to use their extra embryos. Some doctors and even couples approve the disposal of these embryos or push for them to be used in stem cell research, both of which we consider to be abortion. Current estimates put the number of frozen embryos in this country right now at around one million. And we would say these are babies. After all, if given the chance to live and be born, the woman will give birth to a, you tell me, a baby. There's no question as to whether or not this embryo will later turn into a fish or a horse or something else. No, its genetic structure and design by God is to grow and become a baby, and it will either do that or it will die. So earlier stages of development don't disqualify someone from the right to life. They're not considered less human, and at some point they become human. Neither does size or one's ability to be self-sustaining or autonomous qualify them to have life. No, all of these are life worthy of life. And so these frozen embryos are people made in the image of God with a right to life that should never be denied to them. Well, here's where adoption comes in. Many pro-life groups have come to recognize the problem of frozen embryos and have advocated for the promotion of life by offering the adoption of these unwanted embryos rather than allowing their abortion. So rather than allowing these embryos to be disposed of, couples can donate or offer their embryos for adoption by other couples. And when a couple adopts a frozen embryo, that embryo is placed in the adopting mother's womb and carried to term and born into that adoptive family. Unlike traditional adoption, this adoptive mother gets to experience pregnancy. Plus, a frozen embryo gets a chance at life that it would otherwise never have. So we consider embryo adoption to be uh, among many, but nonetheless, a powerful, anti-abortion, life-saving, gospel-modeling thing that a couple can do to promote the sanctity of human life, enjoy the blessings of childbearing, and build a God-glorifying God family. 
Now, the hard road of adoption and fostering in all its forms and dimensions can certainly be this as well. And we consider this, these, all of these to be potentially redemptive and potentially redemptive inbreaking on an otherwise tragic situation. I mean, anytime the, the grace and mercy of God breaks into an otherwise tragic situation, it's never going to be easy. And so adoption and fostering, all that and, and all of its forms is, is hard work, but it is rewarding work and it is the path of blessing. Don't you know God loves to bring blessing through difficulty? <laughs> we just see that all over the Bible. In fact, every child is a gift from God, created in God's image and is worthy of life. It doesn't matter whether those children are genetic children, adopted children, unborn children, unwanted children, children floating around in the foster care system. No, we must let the sanctity of human life guide us and ground us and remind us that every single life is precious. And so in our story, uh, this is, both of our boys came to us through embryo adoption. And so Daniette experienced uh, pregnancy and carried them to term and nursed them. And uh, we consider both of our boys just precious gifts of God to us. They're not genetically related to each other or to either uh, of us. But just like in the family of God, do you realize that family bonds run much deeper than any natural or genetic connection? Some of the questions people have around adoption just in general are things like, how could you love a child that's not your own? But look, for adoptive parents, that child is our own. Whose else is he? Personhood and belonging and identity in a family are much deeper and stronger than blood and DNA. Plus, God just gives you a love for your children. And we can't imagine loving a genetic child any more than we love our adopted children. They are special. Their story is special. It's a celebration of grace. And we can say God has answered our prayers and so blessed our family. And so that's one expression. There are many other ways that the sanctity of life can, can be expressed and honored and upheld among us through various parts that we can play, through tons of different things. I'm not going to list things out because I think it, it's important for us to just consider and seek the Lord. Lord, is there a part that you would have me play? Is there a role? Is there something that you're calling me to do to help uphold the sanctity of human life? I can tell you an immediate starting point is if you have children, it's to be teaching them the foundations of being made in the image of God and what it means that by virtue of being made in God's image, every human life is sacred. And that's a great starting point. That's a call that every parent has. So what I'm going to do is, is take a moment and give you a few prayer points and maybe we can uh, send these out in the email this week um, since I don't have notes. I'm going to give you a, a few areas that you can pray uh, about as a family, individually, um, and these are all areas that are sanctity of life kinds of issues. So I'm just going to read these off. Eric, you can bring the team if you'd like. One, I want to invite us to pray first for mothers who are in any sort of crisis pregnancy situation. We need to pray for these folks. We need to pray for the, the men that are involved with the bringing about of the pregnancy what kind of pressures they're putting on them, what kind of abandonment that they're engaged in and forsaken their pregnant girlfriend or wife, I guess, in some cases. We want to pray for mothers in crisis pregnancy situations. We want to pray for the forgiveness and salvation and healing for anyone who's had an abortion or has assisted in bringing about an abortion. 
We should pray for those in our government to use their positions to protect and preserve defenseless life and not allow laws that protect the killing of such life. We should be praying for that. And like I mentioned, now, maybe more than ever in 50 years, the, the, the wind is in our favor, you might say. Um, it, it's possible that a huge step forward could take place this year. Let's pray that it happens. Let's pray for the adoption of frozen embryos rather than their neglect and destruction. Let's pray for orphaned children to find adoptive families and foster families who will show them the love of Christ and God the Father. Let's pray that the elderly would be treated with honor and care. Let's pray that there would be an end to bullying at every age level. From its, the expression in, in a simple form like mockery to its expression in physical abuse to its expression in school shootings. All of these stem from the same issue. Let's pray for an end to racism in all its forms. That we would see ourselves as equally being created in God's image and equally worthy of respect and dignity. Um, let's stand together and I will pray collectively for these things. Lord, we thank you for Sanctity of Life Sunday as a chance to just hit the pause button and come before you with issues of utmost importance that are swirling around in the culture around us. We don't want to be Christians who stick our heads in the sand. We want to think biblically about these things. And we want to be faithful to play whatever role, small or great, you would have for us. We want, our, we want to have open hearts that say, Lord, how would you want to use me? I'm just thinking about those of you who, are, who work with children, whether teachers, um, daycare, uh, nurses who work in pediatrics, or just uh, any counselors, anybody that works with children, you, you have an opportunity to model the sanctity of human life by the way you care and protect and equip and defend and nurture the children that are under you. Same for parents that walking out the living out the, the reality of every life being sacred. We have opportunities to do this. And Lord, I pray that we would not just do it subconsciously or automatically or arriving at right conclusions, but never really understanding how we got there, but that we would consciously, God, remind us, consciously remind us that every human life is sacred. As we bump into these issues, Bring it to our minds. Bring us back to Genesis. Bring us back to the foundations that you have for us. And may we be a people who stand with courage in our day, in how we vote, in how we advocate, in how we conduct ourselves in a society that seems to be rushing headlong to its own destruction. May we be lights. May we be cities on a hill. Grant this to us, we, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.